So tonight is the third in a series of six talks on the six paramitas. Tonight I'm going to be talking about patience, everyone's favorite. Um, and to begin, actually kind of an odd place, I'm going to begin by reading a quote from a, a passage from T.S. Eliot. This is from the Four Quartets. And this is T.S. Eliot's take on sort of what the modern mindset is and sort of problems with the modern mindset. Here is a place of disaffection, time before and time after in a dim light. Neither daylight, investing form with lucid stillness, turning shadow into transient beauty with slow rotation suggesting permanence nor darkness to purify the soul, emptying the sensual with deprivation, cleansing affection from the temporal. Neither plenitude nor vacancy, only a flicker over the strained, time-ridden faces, distracted from distraction by distraction, filled with fancies and empty of meaning, tumid apathy with no concentration, men and bits of paper whirled by the cold wind, that blows before and after time, wind in and out of unwholesome lungs, time before and time after. And so as with Eliot, there's a lot there. Um, there's a lot that I like in that passage. He talks about how, uh, you know, we don't, modern people don't have the light of clarity, nor do we have the, the purifying darkness. We're caught in this kind of in-between nether realm um, and in particular, distracted from distraction with distraction, a very powerful line, which, you know, Eliot was writing that 80 years ago, and in many ways it's worse now, you know, with these, I often talk about the absurdity that we, we all walk around with the internet in our pocket, and we take that totally for granted, you know, that's just our, part of our normal, um, this device that, holds, you know, 10,000 distractions as soon as I pull it out, you know. Um, and of course, what, what do we see? Any time that any people are waiting, of course, they pull that out and they just start distracting themselves with it. Um, I think we live in a society that is uh, very quick to tout the benefits of technology and, and somewhat naive about... Um, really the, the moral strength or discipline it takes to use technology wisely. You know, how would the Buddha use a cell phone? This kind of thing. So all of this kind of forms the backdrop of patience. You know, we, we live in a society in which there are so many social, technological, economic forces that mitigate against patience. And we hear lots of people in the society saying, you know, I struggle with patience, I wish I were more patient, you know. Sometimes we hear people praise for, you know, that's a kind person, that's a compassionate person. We rarely even hear someone praise for being a patient person in this culture, you know. And so what is patience and how do we get there? And the first thing I'll say about patience, and I I've said this really, in some ways, all the paramitas have this in common. It's a kind of superpower. It's a kind of, uh, 
you know, in modern society, if one can be really patient in a world of impatient people, that is a kind of superpower. So there are lots of components to patience. Um, one very basic one just has to do with expectations. You know, if we, you know, if we, something, if we have, if somehow we have mistaken expectations, we think something's only going to take 15 minutes and it's actually going to take an hour, then, then we'd be set up for impatience. You know, um, you know, if someone thought that this sangha ended, say, at 7.30, for some reason they thought that, then they'd be wondering, you know, why does Mike keep talking? You know, this sort of thing, because they have incorrect information about when the sangha is going to end. And really related to just incorrect information, I think we all have a, a fair bit of kind of a fantasy thinking bias in our psyche. And I think it shows up in, in hundreds of ways. Um, but one of the ways that it shows up is the way that sometimes we wildly underestimate the times that things will take. You know, oh, this is going to be easy. This is going to take no time at all. I'll be done with this very shortly, you know. Um, you know, for example, we might, you know, calculate the time it's going to take to travel to a place, but not take into account the time it's going to park in an unfamiliar place, you know, and then we're setting ourselves up for impatience because, oh my God, I have to park now and, you know, this sort of thing. And so there's an element just of being, you know, how how real are we and how rigorously honest are we with ourselves? You know, this sort of thing. I'll say one way to think about patience is in terms of this, this Buddhist concept of a near enemy. A near enemy of a wholesome state is something that resembles the state and kind of is dangerous because it can be confused with that state. You know, so one of the classic examples, compassion, of course, is a wonderful state. Um, the far enemy of compassion is cruelty. That's really easy to distinguish. We see, you know, person A being compassionate, person B being cruel. We have no trouble distinguishing, you know, what's right, what's wrong. You know, there's no confusion on that point. The near enemy of compassion is pity. Because if I'm giving someone pity, it might sound like nice things that I'm saying, you know, it might, it might pass for compassion. I might tell myself that I'm being compassionate, but it's different from compassion. It's not as nourishing as compassion, you know. Um, last time we talked about discipline. The near enemy of discipline is control. You know, if I'm living a neurotically over-controlled life, I may think that that's what discipline is, you know, whereas in some, some sense it's the opposite. And I, and I think I'll just say that, you know, many years ago in my 20s when I started a meditation practice, probably a lot of what kept it going was neurotic over-control at the time, and it's really been a, a process of sort of letting go of that over the course of decades and and moving more in the direction of, of what genuine discipline would be. The near enemy of patience 
is apathy. And this was one of the things mentioned in the T.S. Eliot quote. He talked about tumid apathy with no concentration. Tumid is just swollen. This idea of swollen up apathy with no concentration. Um, if I'm in a place of apathy, that might look like patience. And, you know, it looks more patient than the person, you know, screaming bloody murder. You know, why is this taking so long? You know, it, w- it might look like patience. Um, but apathy is this, um, I mean, first of all, apathy often has kind of a victim story wrapped somewhere inside of it. It's a real giving up of responsibility, a real cutting off from vulnerability. Um, it's, it's a way almost to, you know, it's like this infantile strategy of I'm going to control, you know, all the, you know, everything unpleasant about having unpleasant feelings by just shutting off all my feelings and going to the place of I don't care, you know. And the, the sad thing is that there's, um, ultimately, I think there's a lot more suffering over the long term, there's a lot more suffering created by living a life of apathy than the apathy would ever avoid, you know. But genuine patience involves being in touch with our vulnerability, in touch with our feelings, in touch with the rawness of everything we're feeling, and still able to be patient with it. And so one way to say that is patience involves capacity. And I I often say this, I often find myself saying this in my Dharma talks that I have a a dear friend who likes to say the most important question in life is how big is your capacity? And the more I've reflected on that statement, the more I realize how profoundly true it is. Um, I'll tell you about something that's happened to me a few times, and I imagine something similar might have happen to some others, you know, I'll be, say, in a store or, you know, somewhere public and, um, you know, some process like checking out, which is supposed to be relatively efficient. For some reason, there's this, you know, bizarre, unforeseen delay. And so I'm waiting there and the person's waiting there. And often, you know, I'll be feeling some impatience, but I'll be able to feel that, but also remain connected to my heart. And so I can talk to the person, you know, the the salesperson or whatever, you know, you know, I know this isn't your fault, you know, how's your day going, you know. And a couple times at the end of that interaction, I'll be, the person will say, thank you for your patience. And I'll walk away from that thinking, hmm, that's interesting. I was feeling impatient, but I was thanked for being patient, you know. And so there's something kind of funny there. Um, In this connection, I want to read uh, another quote. This is from the poet David White. This was from a, a webinar he gave during the pandemic. We often say to ourselves, I need to be patient. And when we were children, we were told to be patient. It's really a terrible thing to be told to be patient because the word patience is just the description for a phenomenology that is totally different on the outside. Patience is not something you can manufacture. Patience is what another experience looks like from the outside. Patience is what presence looks like, what rest looks like from the outside. And so I think he's pointing to something interesting there. Impatience is a feeling. 
That's an internal state. We've all had impatience. You know, we know what that feels like. Patience is more a behavior. It's not an internal, we don't feel patience. Patience is what we do or how we act, but it's not what we feel. And the the feeling that the, the internal state that would go along with that behavior would be something more like presence or equanimity. Another way to say that is, from a Buddhist point of view, impatience is really interesting because impatience is almost pure resistance to the present moment as it is, you know? And that can be a really good way to work with impatience, just what's in this present moment that I want to avoid? You know, what's in this present moment that feels uncomfortable, you know? And in my own life, there there are rare instances where I'm feeling impatient because there's a direct physical need. You know, I'm hungry and I'm waiting for food. I'm, you know, I need to go to sleep and something's preventing me from going to bed. You know, but those those are sort of isolated, rare instances. And a lot of times when I have felt impatience in my life, I realize it's because there's sort of an emotional urgency that is not not matched by whatever is going on in my present moment. In other words, if I'm mindful about my present moment, you know, here I am sitting here calm, safe, you know, but there's an emotional urgency, you know, and that that's often very interesting just to explore, you know, what, where does that, where does emotional urgency come from? And what, what is the, the deeper unmet need beneath emotional urgency, you know? Um, Presence is hard also because, um, of course, just the nature of the mind, we, we tend to spend so much energy going into the past or going into the future, investing emotional energy into the past or the future. And there's this one, the wonderful line in the passage of the Eliot that I just read, cleansing affection from the temporal. In other words, withdrawing emotional energy, rather than have our emotional energy smeared out over the dimension of time, withdrawing it from the past and the future. You know, the the life of my body is in the present moment. And when I'm sending emotional energy to the past or the future, essentially I'm, I'm spending this energy, I'm wasting it, you know, I'm sending it away from my body, you know. Whereas when I'm when all my emotional energy is in the present moment, then it then I'm reserving my energy, you know. And so patience is the behavior that is supported by something like presence or equanimity. Equanimity is, is one of what, what Buddhism calls the four illimitable mind states, the four mind states without limit. These are love, compassion, joy, and equanimity. Um, and equanimity, they're, they're called the four illimitable mind states, incidentally, because they're, they ultimately take us beyond the limits of ego. We have to give up ego to walk any of these paths fully, 
you know. But there's a tremendous amount of equanimity, in fact, a tremendous amount of all four of these, um, whenever we can be just in that place of watching and witnessing the world, you know, what, what Buddhism calls the seat of Bodhi, the place where I'm not invested, I'm not attached to outcome, I'm simply watching the parade of, of life as it goes by, you know. Um, And of course, it's very hard to maintain that posture for any length of time. There's a few times in my life that I've, I feel like I've touched that, you know. Um, theoretically, the enlightened beings are the ones who occupy that in an ongoing way. Um, but I think it's important to acknowledge that, that all of these love, compassion, joy, and equanimity are part of our deepest nature. And that the more I shed of, you know, the, as it were, the dross of who I, you know, who I think I am, which is not really who I am, the more I'm able to shed that dross, the more my authentic nature can come through. So at this point, I'll share the quote sheet. Just I'll share it with the, the Zoomies. hybrid etiquette. I was a high school teacher. After the pandemic, we got all kinds of training in how to teach in hybrid. So it's something I've done a lot of. So we have the, the, the long quote from T.S. Eliot, the quote from David White, from St. Francis de Sales, who was an extraordinary person in many ways. Um, Have patience with all things, but first of all with yourself. Emerson said, adopt the pace of nature. Her secret is patience, you know? And again, it's usually, we find it relatively easy to be patient once we're out in nature, but it's fascinating, you know, this modern world that we've created, thank you, is so far from nature in so many ways. Arnold Bennett said, any change, even a change for the better, is always accompanied by drawbacks and discomfort. Carl Jung said, even a happy life cannot be without a measure of darkness, and the word happy would lose its meaning if it were not balanced by sadness. It is far better to take things as they come along with patience and equanimity. C.S. Lewis said, We were promised suffering. They were part of the program. We were even told, blessed are they that mourn, and I accept it. I've gotten nothing that I hadn't bargained for. Of course, it is different when the thing happens to oneself, not to others, and in reality, not in the imagination. From the great psychologist Eric Erickson, the more you know yourself, the more patience you will have for what you see in others. Anne Mara Lindbergh, a remarkable woman who who lost a child under very tragic circumstances. The sea does not reward those who are too anxious, too greedy, or too impatient. To dig for treasure shows not only impatience and greed, but a lack of faith. Patience, patience, patience is what the sea teaches. Patience and faith. 
One should lie empty, open, choiceless as a beach, waiting for a gift from the sea. From Carlos Castaneda. Death is our eternal companion. It is always to our left at an arm's length. It has always been watching you. It always will until the day it taps you. The thing to do when you're impatient is turn to your left and ask advice from your death. An immense amount of pettiness is dropped if your death makes a gesture to you, or if you catch a glimpse of it, or you just catch the feeling that your companion is there watching you. The Dalai Lama said, Tolerance and patience should not be read as signs of weakness. They are signs of strength. Kind of a mathematical, logical one from Douglas Hofstetter. Hofstetter's law. It always takes longer than you expect, even when you take into account Hofstetter's law. James Richardson said, Patience is not very different from courage. It just takes longer. Tara Brock says, Presence is the essence of true refuge. That that actually deserves a little more comment. It's very traditional. Very traditional Buddhist formulation is, I take refuge in the Buddha. I take refuge in the Dharma. I take refuge in the Sangha. And taking refuge in the Buddha, is that doesn't mean like there's some golden-faced Buddha up there who's going to look out for me and make things turn out nice for me, you know. Taking refuge to the Buddha is taking refuge in my own capacity for pure presence. And that there is a tremendous amount of consolation derived just from letting go and being in that place of pure presence. You know, it, I think we underestimate how much refuge there is there. Joyce Myers says, patience is not simply the ability to wait. It's how we behave when we're waiting. Peter McWilliams said, comfort zones are most often expanded through discomfort. Anne Lamott says, faith involves noticing the mess, the emptiness and discomfort, and letting it be until there is some, until some light returns. Sharon Salzberg says, patience doesn't mean making a pact with the devil of denial, ignoring our emotions or aspirations. It means being wholeheartedly engaged in the process that's unfolding, rather than ripping open a budding flower or demanding a caterpillar hurry up and get that chrysalis stage over with. Mm-hmm. Yang Yi Minyer says, ultimately happiness comes down between the, the discomfort of becoming aware of your mental afflictions and the discomfort of being ruled by them. And John Lockwood Wee says, a wonderful gift may not be wrapped up as you expect.